This is the Sport and Style Podcast, where the trade of sport collides with fashion and innovation. Your host, Mike Gugat, Neil Schwartz, and John Peters break down the news, analyze sales data, and interview industry influencers. The Sport and Style Podcast is on now. This is episode two of the Sport and Style podcast. We're coming to you from our nation's capital, the 202 Create Studio. Uh, we're a mere accelerate away from the Poobah Studio in New York City. I'm your host, Mike Gugat. Hey, Mike, how are you today? I am well, Grandpa. Yeah, we have a new, uh, there's actually a new addition to the uh, to the family. We uh, Zachary Griffin was born two weeks ago here in uh, New York, and uh, everyone in the family is really excited. That's awesome. That's awesome, Neil. We're going to have to – I'm trying to come up with a better nickname for you now that you're in New York all the time. Uh, we'll stick with Brand Daddy. Uh, I'm John Peters, your uh, co-host. Looking forward to kicking this off with these fellas. Well, on the show today, states are trying to ban tackle football at the youth level, and Coles is hosting Amazon kiosks uh, for people to be able to actually able to make returns. Are they uh, keeping their friends close and their enemies even closer? Let's get to it. That's that's actually a great story to kick off with, Mike. Uh, I've been really tracking this very closely. Um, you know, like a lot of us in the industry, when Coles announced that they were going to conduct a partnership with Amazon, you know, there was a lot of uh, eyebrows raised, and it apparently uh, those eyebrows aren't going to have to be raised anymore. Uh, back in October, um, Amazon and Coles uh, launched a pilot program to put Amazon return kiosks in Coles stores. And if you want to skip ahead a little bit to the results, uh, they announced some results at the end of March and around eight point – they've been able to see about an 8.5% lift in the actual amount of traffic coming into the Kohl's stores as a result of these kiosks. Another interesting data point is that 56% of people returning items um, are also new Kohl's customers. So it's not just about them selling – you know, to their existing customers, but they've been able to bring in some new customers. They also found that 40% of the people that come in to return an item for Amazon also stay and browse. So right now, it's looking like a win-win, and it's looked like the philosophy, Mike, that you pointed out of keep your friends close and your enemies closer is really working uh, for Kohl's in this particular situation. JP, is that something you would actually do? You know, I uh, unfortunately don't have uh, even own a car, so to get to a Coles in the middle of D.C. is is nearly impossible. So no, but uh, I do know that a lot of uh, moms uh, would do that, and it looks like they are doing that. I think uh, it's a brilliant move by uh, our friends over at Amazon as well as Coles. Coles' stock in their uh, holiday performance was, I think, over the last six, eight months, they've been up about sixty percent. So they're doing something right, and I I, want to be clear. This, this correlation and causation, just to backpedal and reel in our, our good friend, Brand Daddy in New York there. Um, while it's great, it's still early, I think. I forget the CEO's name who, who's leaving, um, but but he even acknowledged it's very, very early. These data points are. Um, I, I'm just still laughing at the video. Uh, the irony of uh, going through a store, seeing, seeing uh, 
Amazon kiosks, devices, and logos in a physical store. The irony of that is it's still not lost on me. It's, it's, it's truly remarkable. You no, know, John, it's not lost on me either. But as I sit back and think about this, you know, one of the um, e-commerce sites that has the highest return rates, of course, is Zappos. Um, you know, a typical Zappos customer, when they order shoes, might order two or three pairs simultaneously in different sizes. I know that's the way my wife uh, tends to use Zappos. So, I mean, how how far away do we think we are before, you know, there are these Zappo, you know, return sites? I mean, would would somebody like Foot Locker or, or maybe even Dick's Sporting Goods or, you know, some of these other large national retailers entertain the idea of being return sites for Zappos? I, I do think it opens up a real interesting, let's say, thought pattern or discussion pattern. Uh, so to that point, I think that, that you know, if somebody's coming back in to return things, a Kohl's or even a Dick's Sporting Goods has not been known to be a business that aids in the purchase. They're usually there to check you out or, you know, they're a short order cook that goes and gets you what it is that you're looking for. Right. Does this present an opportunity to engage with that consumer inside the store at the return? What are you returning? My guess is that there has to be some sort of an agreement, either, you know, this hard and fast agreement between Amazon and Kohl's. I mean, I don't think Amazon is necessarily looking, um, you know, at this as a way to, to lose business. And I don't think, you know, Kohl's is necessarily looking at it as a way to, let's say, cannibalize, although it's going to happen. Um, I don't see any way around it, but I think that they're going in, I think eyes wide open, uh, like John indicated, it's just a small test right now. It's in 13 stores. Um, the new CEO who, uh, will be replacing Kevin Manziel, uh, Michelle Gass, um, you know, they're really going to have to sit down and figure out how they're going to expand this out. I do know that the plan is to expand it out. But I think they want to get through this uh, transition where the old CEO, Kevin Manziel, is out. Michelle Gass will be making the new decisions. And so I really do think that – I do think this is something for all of us to keep their eyes on. Uh, you know, We hear the term retail apocalypse. Well, Kohl's is maybe finding a way to be able to, to insulate themselves a little bit from the so-called retail apocalypse. I think Neil, what's what's interesting too, uh, if you listen to the interview with uh, what did you say his name, Kevin Mansell, Kevin Mansell yeah. is the guy. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, if you listen to Kevin's quotes, I think the one thing that struck me was um, it has to be a win-win for both sides. He, he mentioned Amazon and Kohl's have to both win in this, and then also uh, the, the the process of returning and walking into the store has to be totally seamless and convenient for the consumer. And so uh, they're in touch with their consumer and, and give Kohl's a lot of credit here, not only with, you know, this initiative, but they've uh, uh, had smaller stores to, to help with uh, dry foot traffic. They've done a lot of interesting things on the merchandising side. So I think that they are, uh, instead of being reactive, they're being very proactive, uh, unlike a lot of other retailers. You know, just to put a period at the end of the sentence, Chuck Rom, who's a retail consultant out of Chicago, you know, there's a quote here that says, at the end of the day, if Kohl's is just getting people to come in and drop stuff off, that's not what this is about. It's all about getting people to convert. So I do think that this is really a work in progress. I think we're going to have to stay tuned um, really to see you know, what transpires going forward. And I also think we're going to have to see whether or not any other retailers decide to jump in on this. 
I'm not great at grammar, so I don't know if this is a comma moment or a semicolon or how we keep the conversation going a little bit further. But but I would suspect that all of a sudden the real estate within Kohl's becomes more valuable to Kohl's to the brands they're you know working with in and around that kiosk. You bet. Has it, that been mentioned? Um, you know, I don't think they've really um, gotten into it that deeply yet, Mike. I think. Uh... I think this is a real wait and see at this point, but I do think the early results are very positive. J- JP states trying to ban uh, tackle football at the, at the youth level. Uh, uh, and tell us more about that. And why should Neil's uh, grandsons play? Uh, yeah, so as you guys know, with being in youth sports and at the SFIA, we do a lot of work around uh, protecting the game of whether it's football, lacrosse, soccer, or anything. And, and recently, these past couple of months, uh, we have seen five states now introduce bills uh, to, to ban tackle football, uh, mostly under 14. And um, all four, four of the five states have focused on football, and Maryland actually uh, their bill included uh, soccer and headers. I believe that's under 12, so banning headers and soccer totally. So uh, we've been on the ground working with our friends over at USA Football, uh, Pop Warner, all the uh, football coaches associations, and really just beating this thing down for, for all the right reasons. And uh, I, I think if you look at uh, this at, at its face, uh, the, the question is, um, it's, it, is this a slippery slope banning tackle football for youth? What's next? Is it checking in hockey? Is it lacrosse? Uh, I mentioned soccer with Maryland. And so th- that's our point of view and, and, you know, not even getting into the other things that, uh, are, are clear indicators of, uh, learning to play on a team, being uh, physically active, all those other things as well. And, uh, the truth is if you look at football as a whole over the past 75 years, it's never been safer before. And so, uh, uh, you know, the other point I should, I should make here is, the people, the legislators writing these bills are totally out of touch and they're not in the industry. And so I think that's a, a troubling aspect as well. Uh, so the update, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we successfully uh, beat down the bill in uh, California, Illinois, and Maryland. They're, they're pretty much dead in the water. Uh, the other two states that are currently pending and should have some action in the next four to six weeks here uh, are New Jersey and New York. So we'll have to stay tuned. Neil's favorite area, New York. See see what they uh, what they rule on. Hey John, let me uh, let me kind of do a uh, kind of a rewind for a minute. If you remember uh, last year at the SFIA ILS event, actually it was two years ago now. I asked a question to an executive at the NFL, and, and essentially. You know, what I said to him was, you know, I, um, you know, I'm a new grandfather and my wife and my wife and my daughter, you know, we have a three and a half year old at home. And uh, what do I tell my daughter or what do I say to my daughter that could convince her that if my grandson Ashton wanted to play tackle football, that it was okay to do so? Because right now, you know, when we talk about this, she has used the words, no way I'm allowing my son to play tackle football. John, what do you got to th- say about that? Well, are you going to answer the question of the own question you brought up? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, what, what, did what do you say to a mom? We're in Washington, so, so you know, uh, answer the question you wish you had been asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't even know the question. We're going to have to repeat the question. I mean, what do you say to a mom right now who, uh, you know, a kid comes to the mom and wants to maybe try tackle football or play football, and the mom says, you know, no, I'm not going to allow my son to enroll or play tackle football. I mean, what can you say to convince them otherwise? Well, I think, you know, if you look at Heads Up Football and, and a lot of other initiatives and technology even around uh, uh, the sport of football today, it, it, I mentioned this earlier, it's a pretty no-brainer argument that the sport today is, is safer than it, than it ever has been. That's, that's the truth. And I think, you know, these, these new arguments against football aren't anything new. I've, I've, I've talked to uh, some friends, not as old as you, Neil, but, but in, the, in their 40s who uh, can remember growing up and their parents telling them, uh, you no way you're playing football. I mean, it's a it's a contact sport, and and, and that inherently drives uh, uh, that the, the traditional fan base of wanting to see big hits and and all these other things. Unfortunately, Neil, I think we should actually reverse that question back to you because you're the person who has the kids uh, uh, and grandkids in this in this world. What are you telling your kids? What are you telling your grandkids? Well, right now, I'm not telling him anything. I'm just trying to get him active and trying to get him to understand the value of running around and. And, and being active and trying to get him out there every day. Um, I think it's important that, you know, that goal is maintained. I'm not sure that it necessarily has to be met by tackle football. I played tackle football growing up. Uh, you know, clearly I'm a little bit older than you guys. Um, Ashton's dad, Mike, also played tackle football. And he's, uh, you know, he's, um, you know, on the top end of the millennial generation. And he's also said that he would be very reluctant to allow his son you know, to play tackle football. I do think there are a lot of other choices. Um, you know, you can go play soccer, basketball, baseball. There's all kinds of opportunities, um, tennis, swimming. Um, I do think it's super important that we do make our children or get our children to be, you know, really active. But, you know, over the years when I've made presentations about participation, when I was working in that area, you know, I've, I've been worried worried about the pipeline of, of athletes and the pipeline of kids that want to play football. Look, I mean, obviously, if you want to play football, you'll find an opportunity, whether it's at the Pop Warner level, high school, whatever level you want to play. I, I just think that, you know, while you and I have argued back and forth, John, about the studies, and we've seen that many of them are not you know, let's just say 100% reliable. Um, the sensational nature of the headlines have gotten a lot of people's attention. And I think for better or worse, I think that's, uh, you know, that's going to be a tough situation to overcome. I'm afraid I might be the, the old guy that's not as old as you, Neil, that John is referring to as my father who played college football at division two level, but you know, it, it actually had more to do with knee injuries than it did head injuries at that time, because of, I'll date myself and my father, they were wearing leather helmets. So they weren't actually tackling with their heads, but I, I was one of those who desperately wanted to play and wasn't allowed to. And wow. it wasn't until I got to college that uh, I ended up playing rugby and what was so interesting about learning fundamentally how to play rugby was tackling with your arms and your shoulders and understanding that the injuries in rugby are that of the injuries that are in soccer. And I think that there was a time when flag football was more meaningful at the youth level. And I, I would believe that there is an opportunity to make flag football cool again. And, and that could be also great for apparel sales because you're still able to dress it up like football. You're just not knocking heads. 
Well, that's been the goal of USA Football. I happen to, uh, and, and John knows him also. Uh, you know, we both know Scott Hallenbeck, the executive director of USA Football, and that's been one of their major drives: is that they want to really to, you know, step up or promote. Um, flag football. Hey, Mike, let me kick this back on you for a minute. You're the, you know, you and Kareth are the parents of, uh, you know, a cute six-month-old baby. If Holden comes to you when he's like five, six, or seven and says, you know, hey, mom and dad, I would love to play tackle football, what's your answer going to be? No. Unequivocal. No. John, I think... Well, and Neil, Neil, to go back to your question originally, um, I, I think it's interesting. So if you ask a parent uh, and we're stuck on football, can you let your kid play football? And, and no is the answer. Uh, I, Mike alluded to it a little bit. Um, what are they, what, what do we want them to do? S- sit and play Madden all day on in front of a screen? Because no, the truth is not. the data suggests, no, the data suggests that in soccer, the rate of concussions is just as high and probably could be even higher with the unreported concussions that go on hockey. Did anybody see the caps player the other night that got, uh, uh, nailed in the, the face with a helmet. I mean, so, I, you know, I think we just have to be careful here and, and, and be a little cautionary. And, you know, it's interesting, just as a side note, no, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of media talking about CTE and, and concussions and hockey after that happened. I think that's just a, but, a but little I, telling. Well, on John, this. I've seen the numbers. Um, you know, I've, I've seen the numbers that have come out from, uh, you know, uh, Nationwide Hospital, Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And I have seen the numbers and I've worked with these numbers and I've worked with the Don Comstock who actually does these numbers she's a uh, uh, you know she's actively involved Dr. Don Comstock I might add and you know I will say that the numbers um, are a little deceiving at times for football I will say that there are a lot of unreported concussions in soccer but again the rate you know the amount of injuries based on the number of people who play um, you know football still has um, you know in terms of head injuries football still does take the lead I mean you know, basketball, basketball has the highest injury rate of all team sports, but they're soft tissue injuries. They're jammed fingers, they're twisted ankles, uh, twisted knee. So they're not the, you know, type of injury. All right, all right Dr. Puba. All right. Uh, where's your MD from over here? I, I, look, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I just go back to what Dr. Uh, Bennett Amalu, I think they say his last name is, yes. the, the guy who gets credit for discovering CT. He went on record about a year ago. Yeah, otherwise known as Will Smith. <laughs> he went on record a year ago saying kids under 18 shouldn't play any contact sports. So if we're going to go that I'm not end a, of the yeah, spectrum, I don't support that. What are we going to? I just think we have to be careful. But I, I don't support that. Real, I don't support that. But real quick, I think that's why we call this the sport and style podcast, as we understand that you know this this sort of absolute is is not going to happen, or it's not a binary choice. And and my saying that my son's not going to play football doesn't mean I'm not going to encourage him to understand the benefits that come from the sport of football and to be able to appreciate football and some of the other opportunities that are out there to play. But to get back to the studies, I think we conflate some of those studies with what is a repetitive stress injury that actually is not a high impact, but that is causing uh, CTE versus the brutality. John, you mentioned the, the Caps player, you know, you know, the, the odds of getting smashed like that are, are probably the same odds that I'll get run over on my bike later today. But, you know, the, the, that's where I think the debate. The I don't know. Deb- that's pretty high. I've seen you. I've seen your biking. Jeez, that's true. The, 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 the balance when you're sleep deprived. But uh, um, but but I do think that that's where we need to have more honest discussions about these things. You know, we try to persuade people with data 
and and Neil, you're the data guy. We 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 don't always look at it through the right lens. And you, I mean, I think are are somebody that can actually speak to this. Is how do we have an honest conversation about that information? It's hard to have an honest conversation, and as a data guy, I have to be careful too to uh, really try to drill into the data a little bit to understand exactly what I'm looking at. You know, look, I am a parent and I am a grandparent and I have to admit that the sensational nature of these headlines does grab my attention. Um, as a data guy, I would like to believe that I can be a little bit more objective, uh, but, you know, sometimes, you know, Mike, they have this thing about perception and reality and sometimes, you know, sometimes perception equals reality, but a lot of times perception does not equal reality. And so, this is a very emo- – this is a highly emotional subject. And Neil, did you, just, did you just say the same thing and then said the opposite thing? I'm so lost on that. Well, it's just that you know, sometimes what you see is not what you get, whereas sometimes what you see is what you get. So I think it's, it's difficult uh, you know, as a parent um, – and now I'm a grandparent – to be able to try to sift through the noise and, and Mike – you know, as a new parent's going to have to start sifting through the noise. And someday, John, if they let you parent, then uh, you'll have to sift through the noise too. I'm noise free for now. Speaking of parents and grandparents, I bet that was a subject that came up in the uh, Under Armour shareholder meeting the other day uh, as, as far as uh, oof is right. So uh, what's your guys' take? Well, I'll I'll start. Just I'll do uh, age before beauty here on this one, Mark, uh, John. But look, I, I I would love to say that I think everything's going to be okay and the world's going to be nice and rosy for Under Armour. But frankly, I I would not be accurate in my opinion. Um, I do think short term Under Armour is okay because of their you know down market move into Coles, J.C. Penney, and also the family footwear people, um, obviously on the footwear side, but. You know, I think that is not a long-term sustainable position for Under Armour. Um, you know, I think Under Armour has to get back to the basics in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, what is Under Armour all about? 75% of their business is apparel. So if that's where the bread and butter of my business is, then, you know, maybe I really need to take a look at the way I am doing this apparel business, understand a little bit more about those brands that are growing market share versus me who is not growing market share. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I think they call this, I, I think they call this a come to Jesus moment um, as the uh, Jewish guy on the, on the group. Uh, and I think that they're going to have to have that come to Jesus moment real soon. I think Patrick Frisk um, and Kevin, of course, and uh, the other product line managers are going to really need to be able to have to sit down and say, you know, who are we? What what are we all about? What are we going to be going forward? Because right now, I don't see the answers or hear the answers to those questions. JP? Yeah, I, I think it was yeah lackluster at best, but pretty, pretty dismal. I mean, the Asian numbers were, were good, but everybody's Asian numbers yes. are good. Uh, same for same for Europe, and and the the most thing that sticks out to me, guys, is even when Nike talks about their North American numbers, Under Armour just essentially was flat in, in North America, and every time that happens. Um, you know, our friends over at Adidas just kind of have to be smiling and licking their chops because their numbers in North America, as we all know, are off the freaking charts. And so, uh, you know, that that's very, very troubling. I think, you know, put all your eggs in a couple of baskets in these, uh, 
in these different uh, athletes and endorsers and really hope they move product. And uh, the truth is distribution is king when it comes to moving product, as we all know. And they've got a lot of issues. And I think, Neil, you're the numbers guy, but I think I read that what was also troubling to me, the, the inventory was continuing to stockpile versus the output on the sales side. That's really troubling when you're in a Well, and I think that's going to be – I think – I think when it comes time, when, when Q3 and Q4 roll around, number one, when we hit Q4 and we're in back to school and, you know, Under Armour's inventory levels, I think, are the highest they've ever been. Um, so that means they're going to have to start dumping inventory. And uh, that's going to happen one of three ways. One way is they're going to look to some of the value chains, like maybe uh, TJ Maxx and Marshalls. Um, another way would be that they'll dump it onto the internet, uh, to some of the uh, internet uh, value e-commerce sites, or they'll somehow try to move it, um, you know, at some of it, some sort of a discounted program with some of their existing distributors. I'm just not sure. I, I don't have any idea where they're going to go with this. I think that, uh, you know, they've got, they've got a lot of challenges right now and they've got a lot of barriers. And I think that they've got to figure out a way that, you know, how are they going to overcome those barriers and how they're going to meet some of these challenges? And right now I'm not seeing it. A couple takeaways for me, and and you know, I read the uh, Baltimore Suns coverage. Just that, you know, ba- or Under Armour has always prided itself as as you know being a, a Baltimore and a Maryland brand. But you know, their their take on it was, you know, Kevin was having to take a tone that is is not core to who he is and the values of the company that he established. So he had to make assurances that, you know, his other ventures like the whiskey business and horse racing and these things weren't going to be distractions. It just felt as though there, there wasn't the confidence that was there when the brand started. And it seems that, that you know, with this, I think it's going to cost like $115, $130 million to reorganize the company. And I guess they've already spent $45 million in the first quarter uh, to do so. But, but what didn't come out of the, the Suns coverage of that event was what is the mantra? What is the Under Armour way moving forward? Mike, humility, humility is, can be a very tough and bitter pill to swallow. And while I'm not, you know, I'm not. You should, you should take that uh, advice, Neil. It's really good. <laughs> is, but but let me let me no Neil, <laughs> it's, it's a great point. But but you know, there, there, was, there was well, there was something Jobsian about Plank in those early days. You know, when they were they were growing, and there was sort of you know a, a certain attitude. And to me, if you look back in the '90s when Nike came under. Uh, uh, fire from from Wall Street. You know there was something about Phil Knight's sort of "just do it" mantra uh, that that carried him through, and and it just it it felt as though a missed opportunity to kind of uh, get back to what it is they all believed in very early on. That doesn't have to be cocky. That doesn't have to be arrogant. But what do they believe in? What does Under Armour believe in? What is unique about Under Armour? You're, you know, you're asking you're asking my question. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, look, I think w- one other thing to point out here, and I know Neil's going to jump all over this one because he and I have gone back and forth on it. But, guys, I'd be very interested in looking at uh, an Under Armour stock chart ever since, I think it was the end of 2016. Neil and I have talked about there when they split uh, into the C-class shares. I think that ever since that happened, uh, where Kevin could keep control of the company, uh, the stock has just been on a really, really bad uh, downturn. Not saying correlation and causation, Neil, but but 
Well, there is actually correlation and car, car causation and correlation, John. I think that, you know, I have looked at that. I have looked at these stock charts and I have looked at these, at these earnings patterns and I have looked at a lot of these things. And, you know, I do think that, you know, I, I do think that they, they basically ceded the entire company to Kevin Plank and, you know, without understanding that, you know, what would happen in the opposite situation, you know, they never thought that they were going to be able to stop reporting these, you know, 20%, 30%, 16%, 20% year over year quarters. And uh, all of a sudden, when you go the opposite way on this thing, sorry about that, guys. When you go the opposite way on this thing, um, you know, the, what are the consequences? How do you how – how can you now undo this situation? And I do not know if there is a way to undo this situation right now. I think that's the scary part of any sort of reset. And it may be, you know, for me – how they reorganize. And I don't know much about uh, the COO, but it, it seemed like he in this meeting, you know, played a greater role. And, and, but even with like hover and what it was supposed to mean and the fact that they were sold out of it, there was just a tone of humility in and around that product. Sure. That, Guys, that is not yeah. characteristic of that brand. See, there's another there's another another fundamental issue that has nothing to do with Under Armour whatsoever. It has everything to do with the state of consumerism and and really the state of the economy. You know, we're looking at a situation right now. Um, you know, we're pretty much in a zero sum game. You know, which means there's not a lot of free market share out there. So if Under Armour's going to kind of get back to those positive numbers and get back into a good situation, who are they going to steal market share from? You know, are they going to steal market share from Adidas or from Nike? Um, are they going to be able to steal market share from people like Lululemon and Athleta on the women's end? Are they going to go after the higher end designer guys? Um, you know, where people like Rebecca Minkoff and uh, you know a number of other. But could that could that be a collaboration? Could that be a meaningful collaboration for both? Well, and, I do- and- collaboration might be the answer for Under Armour, in my opinion, and that's going to take. That's going to take a lesson in humility in order to be able to accept that. Um, you know, Stella McCartney for Adidas has been an incredibly successful uh, collaboration for Adidas. Um, you know, Fenty for uh, for Puma, Puma. with um, uh, uh, Rihanna has been a successful um, collaboration for them. Um, as much as I hate to say it, Kanye West and Yeezy has been a successful collaboration, although there are some that say right now what made uh, Yeezy help Adidas. He, will, he won't be with Adidas uh, in a couple more, couple more tweets. <laughs> yeah, a couple more tweets. Yeah, yeah, Seriously. Right. Currently joined the brand of white nationalist, but uh, – <laughs> NRA member, NRA yes. member. <laughs> So, but one thing you just said was, you know, the the mention of where do they go for that market share? And I think what's concerning is, is the way the media is covering it. They're talking about Columbia Sportswear. Yes. I mean, that that's, that's, that's who's being mentioned when, uh, when you talk about Under Armour. You know, there are so many rumors flying around, um, you know, about Under Armour in terms of what they could, should, might or want to do that is very hard to really, you know, believe any of it at this point, Mike and John. Look, Neil, I always have to do this and, 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 and I'll take the opportunity to do it now. Eric's got to reel you in and correct you on some uh-huh. of these things. I think what you said earlier about the zero sum game, I think, I think it's true, but, but also 
I think you're missing kind of a macro trend. When you take a 10,000 foot view, there are newcomers that are kicking ass, quite frankly, in, in the footwear space. And most most notably, isn't Vans now? Yeah, but they're the stealing space? market share also. Vans is taking market share directly from Converse. But, but wait, 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 wait. Let, let me let, let me finish. So uh, my point in, in saying that is I think that there was a shift uh, to this retro casual look that Under Armour just could not compete. When you make shoes for five years, you can't have a correct. retro shoe. So I think there are some I think there are some macro trends that are out of their control. To, to be fair to Under Armour, I don't agree. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily all on them because I, how would you make well, a retro point, shoe though, for Under Armour? I don't agree with what you said, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Again, as a data guy. Well, you're wrong. Listen, hear me out for a second. (laughs) Three or four years ago, if Under Armour would have been paying attention to the trends, the trends were clear that we were strongly into this athleisure, casual, athletic type of fashion trend. I don't think there's anybody would, you know, disagree with that. Well, back when Under Armour was was literally, you know, starting out with their footwear group, you know, they were all about basketball, 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 basketball. They did not read the tea leaves very well to say, you know what? Okay, we're going to stay with basketball, but we're also going to make this, you know, we're going to come out with this whole line of casual, um, athletically inspired footwear, you know, leveraging the brand, leveraging what we know, leveraging everything we've got going for us. But in the sort of, it, it doesn't have to be retro to be athleisure or to be casual athletic, John. They read the tea leaves wrong, in my opinion. And well, is that is that a, basically what Adidas had done with Neo? So even though they had an iconic line, there were still silhouettes with this Neo that were supposed to be futuristic, but they were consistent with the marketplace. I don't know how well Neo ever did, but well, Neo's been abandoned. That was it has okay. I thought it did it go to Coles or something like that. Well, what they would Neo's basically been rolled up into Adidas, so all of the shoes that were being uh, basically uh, put out under the Neo line are now just out under the Adidas line. And uh, yeah, JP, did you ever have a pair of uh, Justin Bieber's? Uh, you know, I have a Justin Bieber poster next to my rock poster in my room, but no. Hey, JP, I, I have something scary for you. This weekend, I was in the mall. I was in the oh, mall, boy. and uh, <laughs> that was probably less scary for JP. <laughs> no, scary because JP. I was walking around, looked doing some store checks that I like to do, and I happened to walk into the Van store in Town Center Mall in Boca, and I walked out with a pair of shoes and, and uh, paid. Are you a Van owner? Full now? retail, JB, JP. Mark it down. You never, Mark you it never down. pay full retail. Mark you it never down. pay full retail. <laughs> This guy, this guy has a closet full of shoes, and he gets them all free. I did. He, you bought a pair of Vans. Did you own a khaki pair of uh, of well, pants now with your Vans? Uh, this is, this my, incredible. I, actually, a pair of what I would like to call dad Vans, uh, slip-ons, and they're uh, really comfortable. And I wore them yesterday. And in fact, God even got a compliment from the flight attendant on the plane. So, so just 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 FYI for for our Vans brand fans and our Vans listeners <laughs> and the Vans company. Your brand is about to become the most uncool thing on the world oh, now well. that Neil is wearing it. Thanks for that, Jim. The, the kiss of death. The, kiss the of ultra death. boost is slowing down as well. Apparently. <laughs> All right, guys. What else is out there? Hey, Mike. I'm sorry, John. Go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, Mike, what's your story? Well, I, I just love hearing you guys talk. Well, there's something that popped up on in in our I, – I, uh, I brought up the Under Armour shareholders. Uh, I'm going to bring up Dick's for a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Hey, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's an interesting story. 
Um, as a lot of you know, Dick Sporting Goods has agreed to stop selling uh, assault-style weapons, uh, extended uh, extended uh, capacity magazines, and a number of things. In fact, that they've actually destroyed their inventory or are about to destroy their inventory of assault weapons. Well, last week, the NSSF, the National Shooting Sports Foundation – which is one of the lead trade organizations within the firearms industry, their board voted to kick Dick Sporting Goods out of the organization. And then this morning, O.F. Mossberg, the leading manufacturer of shotguns um, in the United States, and also, by the way, uh, the leading American manufacturer, one of them, of firearms, has said that they will not do business with Dick Sporting Goods any longer as a result of their uh, what they're calling anti-firearms uh, position. Um, Dix recently hired a lobbyist in Washington to, uh, I guess, help to reinforce their positioning. You know, this is shaping up to be a very interesting battle. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think they ought to wear that as a badge and they ought to find some way to, if, if they're going to destroy that stuff it ought to be material that's repurposed into something positive yeah i'm not and, I'm, and, I, don't, and, I don't know and, about that. and i i do think this is another one of those examples that you know the nra that my my father you know grew up with you know that was about gun safety is is not the nra after 1970 or you know whatever the big changes uh you know uh happened and i do think there's an opportunity for a dick sporting goods to step into the space to actually educate well, you know, a couple of months ago, I, I you know, after Dix made this announcement, um, you know, I did something that is pretty uncharacteristic of me is that I went all fanboy on Dix Sporting Goods. Um, you know, I thought they made a courageous, I thought Ed Stack made a courageous um, and brave decision. Probably two words that generally do not get associated to, uh, you know, CEOs these days, but I thought he took a courageous and brave position. He has stayed the course. He has not given in to any of the, you know, I think the, uh, the opposite forces that are, you know, you know, mounting against uh, both uh, Dix as a retailer and also uh, Ed as the CEO. Uh, you know, those of us um, who support his position, support his position. And uh, a number of us, you know, are, are shopping more at Dick's. I know personally I'm rewarding that brave that brave attitude and courage by shopping there more. Not that I didn't shop there before, but I did. But I, I'm shopping there more because I want to support that. This is going to be a very interesting situation with Dick's because O.F. Mossberg, you know, has decided to stop selling, you know, Dick's. You know, what happens if Sturm Ruger or Smith & Wesson or any of the other large, you know, firearms manufacturers stop selling? They could, for all intents and purposes, you know, not be in the firearms business anymore. And, you know, they've got – they do have a, a company to support, a business to support. So interesting the way this might go. Yeah, I mean I, I just kind of shaked my head and, and uh, if you're a gun manufacturer today, uh, I just – that's not a great business to be in. I think – Vista Outdoor, who I think manufactures they ammunition and, and some guns, I, I believe that they are, after getting kicked out of REI, all, that, that whole product line, um, they've quickly backed off of, uh, and maybe even dropped some of their gun brands. I don't know if they're performing I did. that the, well. The firearms you know, the brands, um, what they did was, what they did was kind of a little bit of a complicated breakup situation, and they tried to put 
um, most of the consumer-oriented products under the Vista label, Vista Outdoor, and then move the you know the firearms and a lot of the military-oriented products under you know uh, you know the other names, um, ATAC and a couple of the others. But Federal Premium Cartridge, which is the number one uh, brand um, in terms of supplying ammunition. Um, you know, Vista Outdoor was going to look to find an, a buyer for that or a home for that. And, uh, you know, right now this is, you know, this is shaping up to be a really interesting situation. I think one that, you know, business school students are going to be looking at years from now and, and talking about because, you know, the, uh, you know, when you're a CEO of a company, your first obligation is that fiduciary responsibility to ensure that, you know, number one, that you're providing, you know, obviously the best earnings for your shareholders and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, Ed Stack is kind of saying, you know what, but my other obligation is to the general public or what I believe to be the good of the general public. Ed Stack's a grandfather. I'm a grandfather. I live- but, but what you're talking about, Neil, is leadership. And, and leadership, if done right, can still uphold that fiduciary responsibility. And I think this is one of those predictably irrational scenarios where the perception is a short-term loss in sales before these items, when in reality, the, the positive press that could come out of it. And, you know, imagine a place where, you know, they, they could actually educate the community on gun safety and these other things that might actually you know, encourage sales of guns used for sport versus guns used as weapons of war. Mike, this has become... Uphold your local militia. This has become such an emotional, um, don't let facts get in the way of the truth kind of argument from both sides in some ways. Um, I don't like facts getting in the way of a good story, (laughs) but in this instance, you're, you're, you're right. Yeah, I mean, you know... One other, one other, one other space I've been following, uh, or story rather, is wow. is related to this is, is Yeti. I mean, uh, you know, in, in the most classless fashion, the NRA uh, executive director CEO calls them out after after Yeti uh, pulls their membership. Um, but you know, it, it was really fascinating to me because you know these guys are selling you know five hundred dollar coolers and and doing a great job of branding and marketing those coolers to the heartland of America. And, uh, you know, then, then they make a, as the NRA uh, CEO said, uh, not very sportsmanlike, quote unquote, move to, to, to ban, uh, uh, give up on the NRA, so to speak. So I, I think the broader lesson here is to what we're talking about leadership is no longer are we okay with uh, not knowing the values and morals of whether it's an airline company, a footwear company, any type of brand today. The message is clear. You need to get on board with your position and you need to state your position and people respect that. Regardless of whatever side you're on, I think it's very important to- One of my favorite quotes, and I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know who to give credit for the quote, but is, uh, you know, I'm not willing to die for my ideas because I might be wrong. <laughs> who said that? So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot, I have no idea, but there's a lot of people that I, I think that- No, that's way too intelligent for me. <laughs> you know, I, I will tell you one one thing to maybe cap this off. Um, and and my daughter Melissa, who is going to be graduating NYU Business School on Friday, 
Um, over the last couple of years, we've had some interesting discussions about this whole, you know, business ethics, business morality, and you know, the search for higher profits and better earnings, and all of this other. She actually works for a large publicly traded corporation um, in one of their divisions, and and we've talked about this a number of times, and 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 she is headed on on kind of this CFO track for her company, and. You know, we, we've had this discussion a lot of times about, you know, I said to Melissa, if you knew something, you know, wasn't maybe in the best interest of the general public, but was in the best interest of your company and your division, you know, what decision would you make? And uh, she says, that's a tough call. And it's one that, you know, uh, you know, it's one that I would take very seriously, like Mike said, and, and, and really sit down and try to understand one you know, how to make this one of those kinds of win-win situations. But unfortunately, she says too many situations are win-lose. So. And I think that's, that's also, you know, the, the culture that has been created, you know, whether it's the command and control culture that led to the Volkswagen, you know, uh, issues, uh, you know, over the, the cars and their emissions to, you know, where those that are in middle management that are, are trying to drive these results, Sometimes make those decisions the challenge. Yeah, it also integrity. launched the campaign with Farfignugan. I don't know if any one of you guys remember that, but uh, I'm still wondering what is what I'm, is Farfignugan. <laughs> I'm I, 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 I'm I'm you know well aware of it, but I think we interrupted JP. He was about to zing you with something. Uh, yeah, I, I can't even remember now. Oh, I remember. Uh, I, it must run in the blood to to, to give. You know, when asked a question, a non-answer answer. I, 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 you gotta, you gotta get on board with it, put your name on it, and move on. I, I think, you know, in the case of even Nike right now, you know, it took Mark Parker. I think we talked about this in the last last podcast. One story I was really watching was their response and in action, and you know, it took a New York Times expose plus some more people leaving for him to finally, you know, pen his letter or do the all staff, you know hurrah, whatever it was. I, I just think, you know, he was a little late on that. And, and you know, once the story's out, you just got to own it and, and make the best of the situation. That, that's all. I want to thank our listeners, our sound engineer, Tyrone Littman. This podcast would not be possible if not for our partnership with the Washington, D.C. office of cable TV, film, music, and entertainment, our mayor, Muriel Bowser, and our friends at 202 Creates. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Until next time. What is it? I can't remember our f- tagline.